You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story. Offering insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma, a former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma. Stories that offer entertaining escape as well as insightful inspiration for the journey. This week's podcast is week three of the Religion and Fiction Book Club, exploring chapters 13 through 19 of A Reimagined Faith. Things really heat up for Peter Daniel Young as he confronts the dynamic between science and faith. Stick around. Hey, religious fiction readers, welcome to episode 12 of the Religion and Fiction podcast, as well as week three of the Religion and Fiction book club. Really happy you're here taking a listen, but also engaging one of my first stories, A Reimagined Faith, that I wrote to sort of chronicle my own spiritual journey from 20 years ago when I was a 20-something in ministry in Washington, D.C., confronting a whole lot of questions that my friends were asking about the relevance of Christianity and its connection to their modern world. Those questions, in turn, provoked a sort of crisis of faith in my own life, as I realized that a lot of the questions they were asking were also ones that uh, were sort of burrowed deep within my own self. And in trying to respond to their questions, as well as my own, I realized that a lot of the answers that I was given, that I had grown up with, were for questions that people weren't even asking. (laughs) And consequently, a lot of the big, deep questions of faith, life, and everything in between that our world was wrestling with then, as well as now, just weren't answered from my own faith background. And that launched me headlong into this exploration of my faith and the Christian faith broadly, especially regarding the center of it, what is core and what is important, uh, specifically the, the message of Christianity, the gospel, the good news of God's crazy love in Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And for the past two weeks, we've been diving deep into that spiritual journey of the main character in this story, Peter Daniel Young, and as well as, in many ways, my own spiritual journey, Jeremy Bauma, because as I have mentioned in these past episodes, I wanted to chronicle some of what I was experiencing and channel that through the story of Peter in order to give people a glimpse into what it's like to wrestle through deep questions of faith. And now, in this week, we come to really the climax of Peter's struggle and the conflicts that he's experiencing within himself as well as with other people. Not only the students around him, but also his ministry, his bosses, his coworkers. And this sort of explodes on the scene with an interesting interaction confronting the perennial conflict of science and faith. As I mentioned in the episode intro, we come to the climax of Peter's journey, this episode in his spiritual journey, with chapter 13 through 19, what us storytellers like to call the midpoint plot shift. (laughs) 
This is the center of the story where everything turns because of generally a, a major conflict that erupts. And here in the life of Peter, we find the conflict of science and faith on full display, literally up on a platform at an event hosted by Peter's ministry, showcasing the two sides of the faith science debate. And I wonder straight away what that debate, that conflict between science and faith has been like for you. In many ways, chapter 13 offers a glimpse into that conflicting interaction and relationship in my own life growing up. And creationism was the foundation of that relationship between science and faith, where God made the world in six literal days, took a break on the seventh, and all the universe, especially the earth, was around 10,000 years old. We'll get to that more in a bit here, but I wanted to read from my author's note to explain why I included this portion, this part of the story, in this book. As I mentioned, given the barriers that often exist for believers and non-believers alike surrounding the perceived conflict between science and Christianity, I thought it a good way to work through those perceptions given my own battles— Battles, I'll be honest, I'm still sort of working through. Uh, One of those battles was on display in another recent book I wrote and published last year in my main Order of Thaddeus religious conspiracy thriller series called The Eden Legacy. This kind of culminated in a two-book duology in which I kind of examined the nature of human identity and where we gain our dignity from in light of our creation. And Fallen Ones started that, uh, but then the follow-up was book 12 in the series, The Eden Legacy, and I dived deep into the nature of those opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, particularly its relationship to our own creation as image bearers of God, diving deep into the science surrounding human origin and and what that means, that science seems to suggest that uh, there is a 100,000 to 500,000 year progression of human ancestry stretching back far more into the past than a lot of Christians would be comfortable acknowledging, and frankly, what I would be comfortable acknowledging and have been, uh, which sort of was this book's attempt to work out uh, that relationship between what science says and what the Bible says, faith says, about our human origin. It's how I tend to do things in my spiritual life and creative life. I like to work out my own questions in the stories that I tell and in the uh, the lives of people living these questions, as I did with Silas Gray in The Eden Legacy and then also here in A Reimagined Faith. So here we are in chapter 13, and Peter already sort of has this attitude about the way the day is going to turn out and how these uh, this conflict between science and faith is going to turn out. Because the way it opens, today was the day we embarrassed ourselves to death. <laughs> That's Peter, irritated with not only how his ministry is engaging the deep questions that his friends are asking, but also how 
they are engaging the questions he himself are asking. And he doesn't think that the way that they're going about it is the right way. Uh, bringing this uh, creationist Alfred Morris to town to get up on a stage and try and convince his classmates, or his students rather, that the Bible has the answers to all the questions they have about faith. And I want to draw your attention straight away to that sort of attitude that spills over not only in the way he's hiding behind his car uh, when uh, Freddie Morris, you know, drives up to his ministry and that interaction there in the street, but especially later when he's talking with Tabitha about his frustrations. And she has some, I think, wise words at the front end of this exploration of the conflict between science and faith, and words that I took to heart again as I was reviewing this chapter. Uh, In my own questions, in my own frustration with how my own tradition has engaged these questions about faith and science. And here is what she says. She admits that she looks at some of the ways that we're going about responding to these questions and interacting with students, and sometimes I shake my head and wonder. And then Peter exclaims, that's what I'm talking about. And then Tabitha returns, and she says, but what I don't do, Peter, is storm around like I'm God's holy prophet sent to set this ministry straight or Dr. Harrison straight or denigrate good and godly men who are just doing and saying what they feel called to, and for God's glory, I might add. Untold people have found a relationship with Jesus through their ministries, and I'd say that's something to respect, not wag a finger at. The book goes on, Tabitha's words stung. But I had to admit it, she had a point, and my pride had blinded me to the ways God had used Harrison and E.E. in the past— Boy, was I a jerk. <laughs> I like that uh, admission and that self-reflection, and it in many ways reflects my own reflection on those years, 20 years ago, when I was, you know, sort of shaking a fist at uh, the way my own sort of conservative heroes and upbringing had communicated the message of Christianity and also engaged the deep questions that people were having, the the questions I myself had. And I just take a step back and say, you know what? Yeah, maybe there's some of that's problematic, but God has also used it for his glory. And I think that there is a cautionary tale there as we move forward in this story, but also consider our own, recognizing that the past and tradition still has a whole heck of a lot to offer our present. There is this uh, tyranny of the present that often totally encompasses the moment, right, in which the new and the modern sort of assert themselves in a way that insists that tradition and the way things have always been is just flat wrong and no longer valuable or worthwhile. I think there's a problem in that, because for one thing, the church is a whole lot older than our hot takes on the latest social issue or theological issue. And the church has been answering a whole lot of questions uh, for 2,000 years now that uh, we need to pay attention to. And I think that one of those 
things that we need to pay attention to is the very important questions concerning where we came from. And because those questions about where we came from impact who we are now and where we're heading in the future, which is part of the argument that Freddie Morris makes in these next set of chapters. Now that we arrive at the debate between Alfred Morris and Brian McLaughlin. But before we get there, just take the time to consider tradition and your own tradition and the the ways that tradition has answered some of the deep questions of faith, life, and everything in between. What do you appreciate about that tradition and those answers and the way they've gone about it, even as you seek to follow the Spirit of the Lord into the present moment and the ways that we need to think about how we answer people's questions right now. One of those that I bring to the surface in this story begins to unfold in chapters 14, 15, and 16, and I think 17 as well. And of course, that is the question surrounding who we are as people, where we came from, and what does that mean for our lives right now? As I am honest about in the author's note, I took liberties with an actual interaction between Bill Nye, the science guy, and Ken Ham. Ken is one of the major proponents of creationism, uh, this view of Genesis 1 and 2 that I myself grew up in. And he has a, a museum in the, I think, Kentucky, the Creation Museum. He, he's a head over in organization called Answers in Genesis. And they had a debate in February 2014, and I thought that it would be a great foundation to build the same debate off of between Fred Morris and Brian McLaughlin, recognizing two very distinct approaches to faith and science. Of course, Alfred Morris, who's actually named after a very well-known creationist, Henry Morris, from the middle 20th century, wrote a number of books advocating for that sort of literal six-day creation position in opposition to the evolutionary position. Uh, But one of the major points that I want to draw attention to, uh, rather than rehashing the arguments that are made in these chapters, I want to highlight a few things that I think is important when it comes to this discussion between science and faith. And, And the first one that Morris makes is that we are not talking monkeys. (laughs) We were created by God in his image and likeness. Unlike the evolutionary accounting of things, this history of our humanity gives us great dignity and worth. It also explains some other aspects of our story. He goes on to say, it's hard for many of us to accept that when you die, it's over. But you see, the Bible gives a totally different account of origins who you are, where we came from, the meaning of life, and where all this is heading in the future. Romans 5.12 says that through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. But John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
And that, for creationists, is really what it comes down to. Uh, The gospel is at stake in this debate between science and faith. Uh, He makes those points later on in the final interaction between uh, the pair when he really (laughs) leans into and lays into McLaughlin, accusing him of denying the power of the cross. And what Dr. Morris says is that the very nature of salvation itself is at stake with how we talk about creation. And, And that's in many ways true, because the Christian story has always insisted that God created us on purpose and with purpose to be in in everlasting relationship with him defined by love, a mutual acceptance and allegiance between a, uh, God, Yahweh, the creator, the most high God, and his human representatives on earth. But of course, humans decided to instead rebel and to do things their own way as Genesis 3 maps that tragedy in our human story in which we rose up to decide for ourselves what would be right and what would be wrong, what would be good and what would be evil. And thanks to that rebellion, alienation now exists in all aspects of creation, between us and creation, between us and ourselves and our neighbor, and between us and God. Alienation is really what defines the human condition. But, of course, God didn't give up on humanity. He came back to the garden asking, where are you, my beautiful creation, Adam and Eve? And he launched from that point the rescue operation that repairs the breach between God and humanity, ultimately doing for us what we could not do ourselves, dying the death that we should have died, paying in our place the price that we should pay, which is death. That's what Paul says. The wages of sin is death. But of course, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And God in the person of Jesus paid that ultimate price by dying on the cross for our sins to pave the way for not only forgiveness, but also uh, a new life relationship between us and God. So you may not agree with the positioning of creationism, uh, but at least you can understand why the stakes are so great and why Alfred Morris goes to the mat to defend that position. Now, I am sympathetic with that position, believing many of those points that creationists themselves make about the urgency of holding on to our origin story, specifically that we were created and who created us, which is where Brian McLaughlin himself lands. And he does so, though, however, in a different way than Alfred Morris, whereas Morris really gravitates to trying to Uh, adapt science and the science story to fit the scripture story, Brian McLaughlin instead sort of takes a step back and he says, well, the scripture story actually isn't doing what you want it to do to fit the science story. Instead, the scripture story in Genesis 1 and 2 is something entirely different and separate 
all on its own. It's explaining that we were created and who created us, not the how. And this is an important distinction that I myself have made in my ministry when I was on Capitol Hill, but especially when I was a pastor, uh, walking through and wrestling through a lot of these very similar questions that people have had, uh, trying to reconcile the quote-unquote conflict between science and faith, uh, where I myself have landed is that the how isn't all that important. How we were created, whether it was six literal days or there was millions of years between these uh, categories of creation, the fish and birds and land mammals and humans themselves, I really land in the same way that Brian McLaughlin does. And that is that Genesis 1 and 2 is a narrative explaining that we were created and who created us. The other book that I mentioned, uh, The Eden Legacy from my Order of Thaddeus religious conspiracy thriller series, includes a, a riff off of the very same story that Brian McLaughlin sort of opens with in explaining how Israel and the uh, the elders recalling their story and the human story to that young boy Jada would have uh, understood uh, the story of human origins in this very same way as a story, explaining that the world was created by the one true God, the most high God, Yahweh, and Framing the unfolding of that creation using the seven-day work week to explain the vessels and then the filling of those vessels from the heavens to the skies to the seas to the earth, filling them with the lights and the fish and the birds and the land animals, climaxing in the crowning achievement of God's creative endeavor humanity itself, in which we were crafted after the Creator uh, in order to live as His representatives on earth, as co-creators with Him to rule in the earthly realm. This is nothing new. Uh, I didn't make this or envision this uh, way of explaining Genesis 1 or understanding Genesis 1, uh, many mainstream, especially evangelical biblical scholars, Protestant scholars, would understand Genesis 1 in this sort of way, not as a scientific explanation of our human origins, but as a theologically pregnant narrative, again, exploring and explaining the that and the who, not the how. And as we consider trying to reconcile this quote-unquote conflict between science and faith, I think that this is a good place to start. Not only for ourselves, if you're listening and you wonder uh, how to reconcile that conflict, but also as we explain the opening chapters to the Bible to other people. This is the place to start, the that and the who, because as Peter himself experienced, this version, Brian's version of understanding our human origin, opened up within himself something very interesting. And it was the word hope, that maybe science and faith weren't at opposite ends of the spectrum at all. 
But instead, there was an absolute way to reconcile the two. And I know for myself, when I began to understand that a lot of mainstream biblical scholars understood Genesis 1 in this way, it it gave me hope that I myself could answer and reconcile these questions I had about how the scripture story and the science story fit together. I wonder how you yourself have come to reconcile that, uh, again, quote-unquote conflict between science and faith. How have you understood our human origin? How have you understood what the Bible says about our human origin? And does this same story that uh, Brian McLaughlin told, understanding Genesis 1 in this sort of way, does that give you hope as well, like Peter and his friends? At the end of the debate, Peter is having a chit-chat with Clint in chapter 17, And what he's come to realize, again, is that there is no conflict, uh, but there is a lot of tension between the two. And that tension requires us to do a better job of handling the Bible, especially in connecting it to our present. And something that he says I thought was very striking, and it was something that I myself was wrestling with 20 years ago, especially in the context of ministry and trying to connect The Christian story to our modern world. One of the things that he says that he, Peter, begins to understand is that there is a way to be Christian in our modern world. I don't think you need to toss out the faith. I think you just need to reimagine it by getting back to the core of what's important to the faith, its beliefs and practices. That has been my story the last 20 years. Uh, and, And when I talk about Connecting it to our modern world and reimagining it uh, in light of the conversations going on in our world. I want to be cautious here and not suggest that we need to change the faith or make it more palatable to culture, but to use the moment to take a step back and to look at what is core to that faith. If you take this... uh, conflict of science and faith that I introduced here in this story. And you think back to the, well, a hundred years ago, actually, is when a lot of these conversations around origin were raging in America, my country. And the Scopes trial, which I believe I referenced, but I can't remember now that I think about it. But the the Scopes trial was the, the big sort of to do uh, nationally regarding the origin of species in which you had the state of Tennessee bringing a lawsuit against a high school teacher for violating its laws concerning what could be taught in the the classroom surrounding uh, our origin. And if you imagine in that moment, the church or particularly conservative Christians who care very deeply about the authority of Scripture and the integrity of God's Word and and the veracity, the truthfulness of Genesis 1 and 2. Imagine you taking that moment, using that moment to step back and, again, look at what is core to the message of Christianity. Is it that Genesis 1 and 2 are scientific 
texts explaining the how or more theological texts, as Brian makes a point, explaining the that and the who. That we were created and who we were created by and for what purpose. Uh, That's what I mean when we look at the moment, sort of step back in light of conflict and reassess core. What is core to the gospel message? Riffing off of this uh, conflict in Peter's own heart concerning what is core to the message of Christianity, I wonder how current conflicts in our culture, flashpoints that the church is sort of trying to engage might also cause us to step back and reassess what is core to that message. Uh, What do you think might provoke that in our current conversations in the church, in our culture? One of the ways that Peter talks about this journey in his own life, as well as in his current cultural context, is chapter 13, talking about it using the book that he's reading about Pastor Jack and the new sort of territory, the Terra Nova, the new land that he is sailing into. Uh, and he's wondering what that might be in his life, the the new work that the Lord might be doing in his life. And a couple of questions arise in this chapter for him, one of which is, Who is the one coming alongside him that would help him get there, right? He asks himself, who is his Neo? Neo being one of the characters in this fictional book he's reading uh, about Pastor Jack and his ministry and the similar questions and conflicts arising in his life. He wonders and even prays for that one who might come along in his life to sort of come alongside him in his, his own conflict and confusion, praying that it would be Darren, that uh, he would be the one that would come alongside him. And I wonder about you and your own journey and who that is, who is coming alongside you, wrestling through these questions and shepherding you through them into this sort of new land and new territory. It's one of those questions I've been asking in the last couple of weeks, and I think it's an important one because we all need somebody to shepherd us through our spiritual life and our Christian walk with the Lord. Who is that? And how might you be a Neo or a Darren or even a Peter as he is walking alongside his students, Clint? How might that look in your own life to disciple and come alongside others in their spiritual journey? Of course, the other question that he wrestles with is, where is he heading? You know, he think he knows he's coming out of uh, the land of fundamentalism into this, as he calls it, Terra Nova, which is Latin for new territory or, or a new land. And he wonders what that is. He's not quite sure if it's prosurgent Christianity, but he thinks that it's something different than that. It's not just this new hot thing on the scene theologically or ecclesially in the church. It's it's this fresh spiritual territory in the near distance that he knows the Lord is taking him into, but he isn't quite sure what that is. I've been there myself. Frankly, I'm there myself right now in uh, a number of ways, uh, but particularly the, the, the relationship between the seen realm and the unseen realm. Uh, uh, If you've read 
the last year or so of the things I've written elsewhere, I've been introducing this uh, this conflict in the unseen realm between the forces of darkness and that wage their wage war against the followers of Christ, the church, and our culture at large. And I've been reading a number of things, kind of getting off track here, but there is a point. <laughs> but I've been reading a number of things that have really stirred up a lot in me. And uh, some of those neos are the works of other people, uh, authors who have similarly wrestled with the things I'm wrestling with and I'm reading and so thankful that I have the opportunity to read their works and their own wrestlings. But I wonder who is that in my life who's coming alongside me and helping me get into this new territory in which I am taking seriously this battle that Paul talks about between the unseen realm and this earthly realm. And in my own life, I've been writing about that in these other characters in another series, Group X Cases, with Elijah Fox and Gina Anderson and and the conflicts that arise between the forces of darkness and the world around us. So the point, again, getting back to on track here uh, that I'm making is that I'm wrestling still and I'm wondering about uh, the, the spiritual thing that the Lord is doing in my life and where he's taking me and how I'm going to get there. And I want to throw the question back on you and and ask, what is the thing that the Lord is doing in your life? Where do you think he's taking you? And how do you think that you're going to get there? Where might there even be? Well, the final chapter for this week, chapter 19, shows that others beside Peter and even Clint are wrestling with the same kinds of things, wondering where the Lord might be taking them in their own spiritual journey. And we find ourselves back at Leo's, another lunch with the the fellas who sort of come together at, the next day after this debate between McLaughlin and Morris, and they start talking about what they saw and what they heard. And I won't rehash the discussion here between especially Clint and Logan, but I want to do bring it back to, I think, what's core to this discussion about science and faith, but the broader one about our spiritual journey and where we're heading and what grounds us and roots us in our exploration. And that, of course, is the Bible, the Word of God, God's revelation to humanity about himself, who he is, his character, what he's doing in the world, what he's doing in our world, our story, his story. And one of the points that Logan makes is about the Bible. And Peter thinks it's a good one. He says, if God did give us a book, this book, meant to reveal things about himself and us and our world, and it says God made the world in six days, made us as well, what do you do with that? Good question. And it's one that Sam also picks up on. Later on, he wonders where it all ends if we start questioning the things that the Bible says is true. For instance, he says, uh, middle of page 160, Jesus said, when you saw him, the son, you saw the father. He claimed to be God himself. Should we not take him at his literal word? 
Or what about the resurrection? Is it no longer a literal resurrection, but a metaphorical one? And the questions keep coming, and Peter thinks that he makes a good point. (laughs) Because if we say one part of Scripture isn't literal, what about the rest of the parts? Of course, the, the point here that... Peter's making that Sam is making is that the the Bible is core to what is central to the Christian faith. And we need to take it seriously and let it guide the answers to our questions, no matter where they might lead. And where they lead should always bring us back to the analogy that he ends with in this chapter, chapter 19, the, the difference between tents and tarps. <laughs> The difference between tents and tarts for him is super crucial to sort of navigating this tension, this spectrum within the Christian faith between what's real and what isn't. And as he goes on to explain, he says that tarps are tied down with rope, while tents are supported by poles. Removing a supporting pole and the tent begins to droop. Remove lots of supporting poles, and the thing collapses altogether. When it comes to the Christian faith, isn't there a tent under which Baptists and Presbyterians and Orthodox and Roman Catholics can unite? Can't we name the tent and describe the poles that support it? He goes on to talk about uh, extending the analogy a bit further. What happens when you remove certain poles? what happens to the tent of Christianity, like baptism, for instance. Some believe in infant baptism, others believe in believer. Does the tent collapse? Well, maybe not so much. But if you get to the resurrection, for instance, which is central to the Christian faith, if you suggest that it's just a metaphorical resurrection, then that has serious repercussions to the core message in which we hope in an actual literal resurrection from the dead because we believe that Jesus literally actually rose from the dead. And this is, I think, important when it comes to these deep questions we have about faith, life, and everything in between. To look at Christianity as a tent with a number of fundamental supporting poles and examine and evaluate which of those poles are crucial to keeping that tent of the faith from falling down and collapsing. As Peter says, we need to be careful which poles we take away for sure, but maybe the ones we thought were load-bearing columns are really just decorative studs. (laughs) I like that, and I think that's important, and in a good way to end this week— Uh, a way to get us all thinking about what is crucial to the faith and what is crucial to our faith. What is it that we are resting our faith upon? Uh, What is at the core? What is at the foundation of what we are having faith in? And what is that for you? What is crucial to the faith as a load-bearing column And what is crucial to your faith? What is it that you are building it upon? Thanks again for listening to the Religion and Fiction podcast and for engaging in the Religion and Fiction book club. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments down below about our book selection, A Reimagined Faith. And don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to receive insights on the intersection of the sacred and story. Next week, we will engage chapters 20 through 26. 
In the meantime, happy reading.